Ideally, renting a house is straightforward. You pay your rent every month, and in return, when something goes wrong, the landlord comes to help. But it's no secret that it doesn't always work that way. Most renters have probably encountered the stereotypical bad landlord at some point in their life. Maybe the roof leaks when it rains and the landlord keeps putting off fixing it. Or there's a mold or bug problem and they refuse to take care of it. There's recourse, but it's not simple. And depending on the state, tenant protections are limited. You might have to hire a lawyer and head to court, which can be expensive and time-consuming. And even if there are protections, like requiring landlords to register their properties and have them inspected, the city may not enforce them. They've ticketed under our current mayor more for garbage cans being at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, being at the curb early, than for landlords who have not registered their rentals. That's Christine McDonald of the Detroit News. On this week's episode, Irie's Abby Ivory Ganya talks with Christine about her investigation into Detroit evictions. She found landlords and tenants locked in a damaging cycle and lacked city oversight that did little to help. But these were people who were living in conditions that were deemed emergencies. They did not have heat. And they, um, there was another family who was living with sewage, you know, piling up in their basement from a backed up line and was cleaning it continuously. I'm Erin McKinstry, and you're listening to the Irie Radio Podcast. Detroit was hit especially hard by the financial crisis in 2008. That's not exactly news. But here's something you may not know. More than a third of the city's homes went through mortgage or tax foreclosure following the recession. So it created this churn of houses that are being sold off for very low prices. So landlords would pick them up uh, for next to nothing, literally $500, $600. That's Christine McDonald, a data and investigative reporter at the Detroit News. She's worked at the paper since 2003, covering the city through the recession and chronicling how the effects of it can still be felt today. We have been writing about the tax foreclosure problem since like 09, you know, in Detroit, and each of these stories kind of lead to each other. More than 40,000 people have left the city since 2010, but even before the recession, the city faced problems. People have been leaving Detroit since the 50s, essentially, so for various reasons, the build-out of the suburbs, things like that. So that people were leaving because of the recession, too, that it was, it was cheaper. They could rent in our suburbs, like there's some northern suburbs that folks were able to enter into that had some money and that could, could leave the city. So it was an opportunity to get out and to better schools or a better situation. But nearly 700,000 people still live in the city, and Christine wanted to better understand what was happening to them. Detroit is one of the poorest major cities in the country, with a little over 35% of the population living below the poverty line. And one of the major side effects of the recession is that it changed the city from majority homeowner to majority renter. The need for housing, the availability of cheap properties, and lax enforcement of rental rules led to some major problems for just about everyone. 
We knew that there's been this incredible turnover of homes that no one else in the country has had these many homes foreclosed and how is it affecting folks now? So we wanted to look at eviction cases. To do that, Christine would need data from the district court that covers Detroit. The court has a public searchable database that tracks eviction cases, but it wasn't easy to pull large batches of data. I just made a pitch to their attorney that I felt that the data, while, you know, legally, because they have a public terminal and they make all their data available, that data is not accessible as a whole to be analyzed and that the greater good of having somebody look at this eviction data was so important that they should consider giving it to us, um, even though they don't have to. Christine says the court never actually rejected her pitch for the data, but it took officials several months to decide to give it to her. Every so often, she would go back to them and make her pitch again. It took a long time for them to think about it. We had already talked to them about the overall caseload because we had that data that Detroit had an incredible number of eviction cases every year, and that caseload was really intense and that we wanted to get at why that was and what the uh, causes and solutions. So again, I made the pitch and they, they agreed. So she got the data which included addresses of the rental property and the names of the tenant and the landlord. But if you've ever done this kind of work, you can probably guess what happens next. The data just outputted into this text file, and it was real dirty, and it wasn't consistent. To clean up the data, Christine revisited a partnership with Eric Seymour, a postdoctoral research associate at Brown University. Christine had worked with him before on a project about foreclosures. Eric studies housing instability in Detroit and was able to write code to clean up the data. And so he ended up helping me, you know, do the ugly cleanup of of the addresses and getting them so we could um, get a Latin long and be able to plot them and map them. Teaming up with Eric worked for a couple reasons. For starters, the news didn't have the staff to take on a massive data cleaning effort. But it also worked because Eric is objective. He wanted to use the data in his own research, too. It's not like he works for the city or, you know, or any other um, agency. And he wants to get at the truth, you know, uh, so it, it worked well. And he had more advanced skills in data than I do. And because the data was just so dirty that, you know, I needed that help. So it made it possible because otherwise, yeah, I probably it would have been much more difficult. I would have had to find another way. But even after the data was cleaned, it still had problems. The data is so bad that we don't know if someone has actually been evicted. We just know a case has been filed. It could have been settled. It could have looked like it's a judgment against the tenant, but it could have been settled. So it was very dicey in terms of how far we could take the data. At this point, many reporters and editors might have pulled the plug, but not Christine. She reasoned that even imperfect data was better than nothing. But we felt that painting a picture of how many cases have been filed does give readers a measure of how big of the problem is. The data is limited, but we didn't want that to stop us from exploring this. You know, there's some concrete conclusions that we can draw from the data. But again, there, there are some things that we can't, that we can, we can interview folks who deal with the problem and get their take. And, and that's what we tried to do. Working with Eric... They'd been able to analyze 285,000 cases and show that families in one out of five Detroit rentals face eviction every year. (music) 
When we think about eviction, it's often the renter who comes across in a bad light. And that's definitely the case at times in Detroit. But Christine's investigation also found that the vast majority of landlords who took people to court, well, they weren't following the rules themselves. A city ordinance requires all rentals be registered, livable, and inspected annually. But a combination of factors has allowed many landlords to fly under the radar for more than a decade. Christine says the problem just hasn't been a priority for the city. Census data estimates there are 140,000 rental units in Detroit, and Christine found only 4,000 addresses were registered and inspected in 2016. They realized it was a problem in terms of landlords not being held to a standard. We are a, a city of single-family homes. The vast majority of the landlords are not registering. The city's not inspecting those units. To give you some context from the data analysis, the city has issued less than 5,000 tickets to unregistered landlords since 2014. They've given out more tickets in that time to residents who have put their garbage cans in the wrong spot. Renters would go without heat in the winter. During her reporting, Christine found properties with dangerous electrical systems, rodent infestations, and backed up sewage. Frustrated, tenants would withhold rent to try and force repairs, but often that just led to eviction. It's hard to say how many eviction cases are the result of a dispute over repairs or conditions in a home. Christine saw cases where tenants just didn't show up for their hearing. In some cases, the housing advocates that we talk to say that tenants just give up and leave and don't fight the case because they feel that they're not going to accomplish anything. Some renters would rather find another place to live if they can. They know they want to get out. So I think it's difficult even for a judge to say, well, I think this percentage of evictions involve a dispute over the living conditions. A lot of times people just give up and move on rather than go and fight the eviction. If a landlord-tenant case does make it to court, Christine found that judges tend to continue a pattern of loose regulations. They don't ask and they don't require that, city, that landlords pass inspections. And even when landlords are found responsible for blight violations and not registering their rental, that the vast majority don't pay, the fines just sit there because the city hasn't found a way to recover them. Nearly 85% of blight violations have gone unpaid since 2014, which adds up to almost $2 million. Christine's next stop was the district court covering Detroit. She wanted to find landlord-tenant cases and the people affected by a lack of city oversight. She'd block out her mornings to sit in the back of the courtroom and just observe. Then she'd talk to families out in the hallway to see if they wanted to share their story. But it wasn't as easy as it sounds. You'd follow families and then lose track of them for various reasons that folks, you know, that are going through this have a lot of stresses on them. So sometimes you would think you would be following someone through this, but then you wouldn't hear from them and you'd have to go find someone else. So that was the challenge of you know, finding families that you could stick with that were willing to open up and to expose what they are going through, which is not easy. A woman named Latasha Tucker approached Christine in court one day. She came and talked to me and thought I was potentially with the city, like working with the health department. She wanted to complain about the conditions. Christine told Latasha she was a reporter and not affiliated with the city. Still, Latasha wanted to show Christine photos of what was happening inside her rental home. 
then that's when we sat down. The judge hadn't taken the bench yet, and we just sat down for a while and talked to me about how bad things were. And she had this photo of an overflowing toilet, and it was just disgusting. And she had told me for months had had sewage in her basement. So it was at that point where I realized, yeah, I need to go. This is so severe. As soon as they leave this courtroom, I need to go to their house. Christine was in court that day following a different family, a father and daughter whose unit didn't have heat. But she didn't want to lose the Tuckers. I asked them, you know, would you be willing to let me feature your story in our in this article? This is what we're doing. And, you know, could I come today and see it? Can I bring a photographer? And they were eager to do it because they were so, you know, in their words, desperate. They didn't know what to do. The Tucker's rental was two stories with a basement. Their landlord had scooped up the property for $2,600 at a tax foreclosure auction in 2013. And the problem Latasha was having? Sewage and sludge were bubbling up from a toilet and floor drains in the basement. It had never been inspected. They were trying to keep everything out of the basement. They could no longer use, you know, the washing machine. It would have long, long been destroyed. But the kids, it used to be a place where the kids had played, the two boys. And once the backup started, they couldn't do that anymore. Latasha's boyfriend let Christine borrow a pair of rubber boots. Then we put like grocery bags around them because we were worried about that I would, you know, they would get soaked in. And so I went down there and it was just, it was just, it's hard to describe. The smell first when we get in the house was just overpowering. But when I got down there, it was just, it was kind of like choking. You're splashing through this water and, and the dad is walking me through. But all the way in here, all the way into that room back there and into this room over here as well. I had two sump pumps that they had basically burned through. This is water all the way over here to this room over here. You can see how deep it is. But I pumped it last night. The Tucker's home had been like this for months. The city had even visited the rental twice and issued an emergency order. No one ever followed up. Latasha's landlord said she tried to fix the problem but didn't know how bad the flooding had become. You want the city to step in and do something, they have to step in and tell these landlords, look, you're renting these places out, you're not registered, you have to follow the law, and you can't have people living in squalor like this. Latasha's two sons were under the age of eight. Both of them had asthma. Three times a week, while her boys were at school, she would try to get rid of the sewage building up in the basement. And it was just uh, crushing just to um, hear that folks were living with this, especially with their kids. The same day Christine met the Tuckers, she helped them connect with a nonprofit lawyer who defends tenants living in unlivable rentals. She knew there were attorneys who could help families like the Tuckers, but she had to be careful not to get too involved or cross any ethical lines. I was upfront with my editors of what I did, but I felt that I had to let them know about these options because they were facing eviction. And once they had that eviction on their record, you know, we've documented that folks, um, it's on their credit report and the new landlords are less likely to rent to them. She says it was ultimately the right decision. I'm certain that if I probably had not introduced them, they may not have known that they existed and may not have gotten their help. Christine also wanted to make sure her story was fair to landlords. 
that's a challenge because you want to be aggressive because you know that there is a serious problem and that you want to make sure that you hit that hard. But you also know the reality is not black and white, that there's gray out there and that folks, they're making the argument if there's this aggressive crackdown on landlords, the result could potentially be people losing more housing in Detroit, which is not what we need. While regulations in Detroit aren't well enforced, they are some of the toughest in the state. Inspections cost $150 a year, and lead tests can be several hundred more. The cost of getting into compliance could pose a real challenge to landlords. And there are other problems to consider, like bad tenants and theft. One landlord told Christine how he'll quickly move air conditioners and appliances out of empty units because they're often stolen. Those landlords that I talked to said their colleagues or their, if they're property management companies that they represent, that folks are leaving the city because they don't want to put up with this anymore. And so I needed to reflect that because the goal is get towards a solution to the problem. And, you know, you need that context for the full story of what's happening. In Detroit, the full story of what's happening has been unfolding for years. I wrote this story 10 years ago at the paper. It was uh, not a project, but basically the challenge and the promises of city officials saying that they would clean this up, that landlords would be inspected. But things may turn around. Officials told the paper they're serious about going after bad landlords. They hired more inspectors, tasked collection firms to go after blight fines, and deputized inspectors to issue 90-day misdemeanor tickets if landlords ignore them. After the investigation was published, Detroit City Council voted to update rental regulations and included rules that prevent landlords from collecting rent if they haven't passed inspection. We'll have to wait and see if the changes make a difference in Detroit, but Christine's reporting has already helped some families find safer homes. It's also provided a lesson in the value of chasing important stories, even if the resources you have are less than ideal. These projects are so hard. When you're done with them, you never want to do another again, you know, because it's just so many moving parts and you feel like you want to do the issue justice and and be fair and get at the truth of, of the problem. But it can be a real challenge when you're limited by the data and no one's looked at it. Don't be deterred because the data has problems. There's still a lot that can be salvaged in these cases and that are very important stories to tell. Don't let it stop you if you can't do everything you want to do with the data. There's still important conclusions that could be made. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to the Detroit News' story in our episode notes. You'll also find resources on covering housing and landlord-tenant issues. On our next episode, Leslie Postal of the Orlando Sentinel talks about how she and two other reporters dug into Florida's school voucher program. You know, there was a hole in the wall under the window, and there was a hole in the ceiling with wires coming out. And then the director said, this is our library, and it was a completely empty room. No books, no furniture, no computers. Want to give the gift of investigative reporting this holiday season? Share the podcast with friends and family. They'll thank you, and so will we. And if you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Abby Ivory Ganya reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Erin McKinstry.
Podcast.